Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. broadcast today is entitled, When the Right Thing Doesn't Work. Today I want to share with you some practical insight from Scripture that I believe is very beneficial to every single one of us regarding when you or I do our very best to do the right thing, we obey Scripture, we're prayerful, we do what we know God would have us to do. But everything seems to blow up in our faces. In other words, you were prayerful, you were careful to obey Scripture, you were in the revealed will of God, but in doing so, things seemed to be worse, to get worse, rather than being better. Now, after introducing this, perhaps it would be good for you to think back at a time or a situation when you tried as hard as you personally could to obey God, but things just absolutely fell apart. Has that ever happened to you? I'm certain that it has to one degree or another, and it surely has happened to me as well. Now, sometimes when these things happen, when a situation that we did our very best in to be Christian and godly and prayerful, when this blows up in our face, when this occurs, we might be tempted to question God or to question God's Word. And perhaps this is human nature, but this is not right, to question God or God's Word. Now, I might reflect and say, did I choose the wrong pathway? Is there something in my life that is hindering my prayers or hindering the effects of God's Word in my life? I should always self-examine. Please always self-examine. But there are many occurrences in Scripture of someone who was doing everything right, and yet bad things continued to happen to them. One such man was Job in the Old Testament. He loses everything, his health, his children, his finances— The only thing he has left is his wife, and his wife effectively tells him to curse God and die. Just get it over with. Then he has three friends come to him and tell him, Job, you're harboring secret sin. You're doing something wrong. God wouldn't allow this to happen in your life unless some secret sin is a part of of your life. And so if you would just repent of that, then this would all be over. But While that might be true in some cases, it wasn't true with Job. Job was being afflicted because Satan had challenged God, and while there was an invisible warfare that Job didn't even perceive, he didn't even know about, that was the root of all of his afflictions. You'd also remember from the book of Genesis, Jacob's younger son, Joseph. He was Jacob's favorite, and because of that, the older brothers were jealous of him. They hated him. And they ended up putting him down in a pit and selling him into bondage. He was sold into slavery because of the jealousy of his brothers. And 
what's so bad about that? As a slave in a home owned by Potiphar, Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him. He runs out of the room. She accuses him of doing something that he did not do. And the next thing you know, he finds himself in jail. But as you know, in that case, God was with him the whole time. He was never unfaithful to God. He's one of the few characters in all of the Bible that the Bible says nothing negative about. And that's a very rare group of people that the Word of God does not say something critical about David, the man after God's own heart. God's Bible records his failings. Peter, the best friend of Jesus in his own life, the Bible records his failings. Joseph is one of the few people the Bible never says anything critical about, and yet his life had many trials and many tribulations when he did what was right, and because of that, his situation got worse. Now, we know ultimately God delivered him and exalted him. He put him in a position of authority in Egypt, and all of the negative that Joseph experienced in his life would be overruled by God, and out of that situation, God would bring something very good. God uses his location in Egypt and his authority in Egypt to deliver all of his brethren and his father and all of his nieces and nephews in a period of seven years of famine because of his position, both physically but also politically in Egypt. So God brought beauty from ashes in that situation. It ended up a very beautiful situation despite the sinfulness of his brothers and the unfortunate nature of the trials that he continued to experience. But Joseph did that which was right, and life got rough for him for a time. When things like that happen, we should never question God or his word. The human nature in us causes us to do that, and again, that's simply not right. The first thing that I would remind you of regarding that, remember at all times, we live in a fallen world, and this world is corrupted by sin. Every human being has the same nature of sin that you have, and that nature never leaves us as long as we are physically living beings in the world if we're not glorified. We have the nature of sin as a part of our overall being. And so just think about that for a moment. You have billions of people in this world that all have the nature of sin. Because of that, sometimes when we do that which is right, the sin around us in this world causes it to just blow up in our faces. Because of that, people going contrary to God's word, his revealed will, is the norm. God command certain things in his word. He says the way it ought to be in his word. And when those who do not know him, or even maybe at times those who do know him, but they're being blinded or influenced by sin, they might react to what you're doing as you obey God in hostility. That's happened to every single one of us. It happens in our homes it happens with our children. Certainly children don't like to be told you need to be responsible and go to bed and wake up on time and get your schoolwork done. You need to turn off the video games. You can't go out till two in the morning with a boyfriend at 17. I mean, these are the things that a parent that's doing what God would have them to do is going to say, and little church-going teenagers don't like that. But Eventually, I believe that they come to appreciate it later in their life. I know certainly I do. We get kickback, though, when we try to do that which is right from people all around us, especially if a person is an outright unregenerate or a reprobate. There's no way except for God restraining them 
that the unregenerate is going to be in any sense approving of that which God says is right, because the gospel is foolishness to him. The word of God is foolishness to him. All through Proverbs, we read about the fool that doesn't like God's word. He doesn't like the commandments. He doesn't like reproof. He doesn't like rebuke. He doesn't like wisdom. He wants to do that which is sinful and rebellious. He wants to commit folly each and every day of his life. So when we do what is right, we can expect ramifications. We can expect kickback. We can expect tribulation and persecution in the world. And so in the New Testament, we read language that all who live righteously and godly for Christ, they're going to suffer persecution. They're going to be persecuted, and that persecution is not ultimately against them. That persecution is ultimately about Christ. The reason that the wicked persecute God's people, when God's people are obedient, is because they're really after Christ. They're really trying to hurt Christ. They're kicking against the pricks, as it were. Now, if people are contrary to God's Word, then sometimes situations will blow up contrary to what you would expect when you obey God's Word. This really is inevitable, but remember, that doesn't mean God or His Word are threatened. In fact, knowing His Word I realize this sort of thing is possible, and I kind of anticipate it from time to time. So what has me thinking about this for today's broadcast? Reading the early life of Moses really had me thinking about when this occurs, and it's something that we've all experienced. Specifically in the book of Exodus, as God sends Moses to Egypt to deliver Israel, when he sends him to do that, as we will look at in a greater detail momentarily, you would think, well, God sent him. He called him at that bush that burned but was not consumed. He sent him into Egypt. He told him to deliver his people, and since Moses is obeying what God said to do, it's just going to work out. It's going to be fine. God tells him to do it. Since God told him to do it, it was God's will, and because it was God's will for him to do, it was just going to work out where this occurs without problem, without issue. It's going to be easy street because we're in the will of God. Well, that's simply not the way that it happened. It was a time of great challenge. It was a time of great persecution. It was a time of great murmuring of the people of God and opposition from Pharaoh, who was a wicked man who did not know God. He was an enemy of God. His wicked heart had been hardened, that is to say fortified, And he did everything he could to stomp out what God was doing in the world at that time. You might be tempted to think, well, if Moses obeys God's command, it will all be rosy, it'll just work out, but that's not what happened, at least not at first. Now, there's a point in this that we need to consider. God would eventually turn the tide, as it were, with Job, and Job would be restored. Joseph, though he suffered a lot of affliction, eventually would be exalted, and his life would be way different than it was when he was a slave or when he was a prisoner. And God does that. He gives beauty for ashes. But some people in this world do what is right. It blows up in their face, and their deliverance is not in this life. Their deliverance is in the next life. If a person died a martyr's death, they did what was right. The world hated them. The world persecuted them. The world killed them. And in that death, they were more than conquerors. And God's people are counted as sheep for the slaughter each and every day, according to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. However, in death, we are more than conquerors through Christ that loved us. What happens then at the moment of death? That's the absolute worst that the world around us can do to us. 
At death, a child of God goes to be with their Lord in glory. Jesus has saved them from their sins. They will be with him in glory. They will not suffer anymore. God has the last say, even if a wicked person kills one of God's children, because God is rescuing them into glory in that moment. So let's dig into the story of Moses and look at how God commands him. Moses obeys reluctantly, but he obeys. And once he begins to do this task that God has commanded him to do, rather than this just kind of working out at first, things get much worse for the people of Israel that Moses has been sent to deliver from Pharaoh's hand. Before it gets better, it gets worse. And that doesn't mean Moses is outside of God's commands or God's will. Obeying God brought hardship on him because of the wickedness of this world. And we need to be prepared for that. We need to be equipped. We need to understand that that is something that can happen to us just as it did Moses. So after summarizing what happened to Moses, let's go chapter by chapter, just noticing a few things that happened in the story before this situation where things just get totally out of hand. The book of Genesis concludes with Joseph and the other patriarchs, his brethren, being in Egypt at the death of Jacob. Jacob dies in Egypt. They take him back to where he buried Leah, and they bury him there. And then Joseph passes away. They embalm him. They put him in a coffin in Egypt. And Exodus begins following after some time has passed, and a pharaoh arose that didn't respect the Hebrews. He didn't respect the God of the Hebrews, and he didn't respect them the way the previous pharaoh respected Joseph. Because of that, and because of the fear of the Hebrews, because the Hebrew women had children easier, God was with them, the Hebrew boys were stronger and goodlier, as it were. Because of that, the Egyptians began to fear, and said, what if an enemy comes in, and the next thing you know, these Hebrews begin to side with these enemies. They could destroy us. They could take our land. They perceived the Israelites as a threat when they were not, and they began to enslave them. They began to afflict them. They were committing genocide against the freshly born Hebrew children. There's an interesting story about that. The midwives in Egypt were to kill the babies, the Hebrew babies, when they were born, specifically the males, but they would hide them away and send them somewhere else. And when they were confronted about it, they made up a story. They were dishonest to Pharaoh's authorities, and God actually blessed the midwives with houses because of that. That doesn't mean that God approved of the lie, but it does mean that God approved of what they did, and God blessed them for that in the nation of Egypt, those midwives who did not kill those little babies when they were born. Moses is born at this time period when the Israelite babies are being killed. We find this in chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 2, a woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein, and laid it in the flags by the riverbank. So this baby is sent down the river, as it were. Basically, she leaves this baby up to the care of the Lord. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. She sees the child, and she has compassion on this child. She says this is one of the Hebrews' children. Moses' sister is there, sees Pharaoh's daughter holding baby Moses, and says, Shall I fetch 
a woman to come and nurse this baby for you because Pharaoh's daughter wasn't expecting a child. She couldn't just nurse on command. And so that's exactly what happens. Moses' sister runs and gets their mother who comes and nurses this baby. So you can see God's providence all in this story. Because Moses is basically adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, he grows up with royalty. He's raised in royalty. But later on in chapter 2, he actually flees from Egypt because as a grown man, about 40 years of age, he looks out and he sees a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian. And he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. Word of that spreads And rather than being thankful, as Moses sees two Hebrew men fighting, he confronts them. And he says, your brothers, why are you fighting? Your Hebrews both being afflicted in this country, you you shouldn't do that. They reply, well, are you going to kill us the way that you did that Egyptian? Are you our Lord? Are you our master? Who made you our master? Moses then understood that the word had gotten out about what he had done. And he runs, he flees, and he ends up in the land of Midian where he meets a priest, he marries this Midian priest's daughter, and he spends another 40 years there in the backside of the desert, as it were, in Midian. Now, you might think that that phrase, the backside of the desert, is some sort of a pejorative or a figure of speech that I'm making up, but if you look at Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1, it actually says that Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. He sees this mountain in the backside of the desert, and in this mountain, Moses is going to see a bush that burned but was not consumed. He is curious. He says, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And so the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, and God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. And he says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, and the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Moses is terrified because of this bush that burned and was not consumed. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a terrifying thing. People today like to think about God purely as, well, God is love, and God is beautiful, God is holy, God is wonderful. But at the same time, listen, God is terrifying, because we are still sinners, and God is still holy. And there's something in us that tells us, man, I I am a condemned sinner, I am undone, I am unclean. We are terrified to behold God. In fact, every time someone in the Bible saw God in his glory, as it were, what they could see of his glory, they fell on their faces as dead men. Daniel's comeliness was turned to corruption when he saw Christ. John the Apostle in Revelation fell as a dead man when he saw Christ. It's terrifying, and Moses is terrified. Well, as you know, God sends Moses. He tells him to go back to Egypt. He tells them in the close of Exodus chapter 3 that he's going to give the people of Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians, that you're not going to go away empty, but people are going to be leaving with jewels and silver and gold and raiment, and you're going to leave with the spoil of Egypt like you conquered them when really you're going to be repelled from them. Now, hearing all of that, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people free. 
you would think that, well, I'm going to go do that and it's just going to work out because it's what God told me to do. But you see, God also warns him in these commands that Pharaoh's not going to hear you. He's going to reject what you say. God says, I am sure that Pharaoh is not going to hear you. He's not going to let your people go. And so this is going to be a time of trial. It's going to be a time of affliction. Again, just because we obey doesn't mean that everything is going to be just rosy in our own personal lives. So God appears to him. God sends him back to Egypt. Moses goes back to Egypt. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in. And told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord? Now that Lord there translates from the Tetragrammaton, which literally is the name of God in the Hebrew language. And the oldest pronunciation of that that is attested to is Jehovah. Now the Hebrews didn't have a Jah sound, so it would be Jehovah, but Understand, when you read that all caps Lord in the Old Testament, it literally has reference to the name of God. So Pharaoh basically says, to say it in English, who is Jehovah? Who is this God that you're talking about? I don't respect him. I don't know him. I don't fear him. Why should I let these people go and stop doing this work that they were doing? What these Israelite slaves were having to do was build choice cities for Pharaoh. So they were using them as slave labor. They were abusing them. They were using them, exploiting them. And Pharaoh basically says, why should I let them go? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let them go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Moses and Aaron continue to plead with them, and the king of Egypt is just adamant that they are not going to go. He's obstinate. He's not letting them leave. What's worse? Now, to be told no is bad enough, right? Pharaoh says, behold, the people of the land now are many, and ye make them rest from their burdens. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no more give the people straw to make brick as heretofore, for let them go and gather straw for themselves. So they're not even going to supply what's necessary, the ingredients necessary to make the bricks that made the cities that Pharaoh was forcing them to make. He says, if you want to go rest and worship your God, obviously you have too much time on your hands, so we're going to make it even harder for you. How cruel and callous was this wicked Pharaoh. And the tale of the bricks which they did make heretofore you shall lay upon them, you shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle, therefore they cry, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let their more work be laid upon the men, that they may labor therein, and let them not regard vain words." So these taskmasters go out, and they make the lives of the men in Israel even harder than their lives were before. Now, the people of Israel, when they hear this, they don't say, hey, let's rebel, or hey, let's take up arms against Pharaoh, or hey, you're wrong, Pharaoh, we want to honor God, and there's nothing you can do to stop us from honoring God. Actually, what the children of Israel do is they begin to murmur against Moses and Aaron. In verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who stood in the way. They said, The Lord look upon you and judge, because you've made our Savior to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants, to put a sword in their hand to slay us. You made it worse on us, Moses. And so Moses returns to the Lord, and he's confused. Why hast thou so evil and treated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? Lord, it blew up in my face. If this is really what you wanted me to do, why is this happening? Now, it's never right to be mad at God, but sometimes we can say, Lord, help me understand the situation. 
And remember that. We have no permission to be mad at God, but we can ask to understand the situation. Now, of course, we know the rest of this story. After a series of plagues, Israel is sent away carrying wealth with them. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He follows. He's drowned in the Red Sea, and they're delivered from Egypt. But let's look at what happened in today's portion of Scripture. Moses did what's right, and things in the short term got worse. I've got seven brief points that I want to make about this. First of all, we have to remember that God's timetable is not ours. God would eventually deliver them, but not yet. When you do what's right and it blows up in your face, then you just think, well, the time is not yet right. But I did what was right. I followed God. My conscience is clear. And even if it brought negative consequences in my life, I know that I did what God would have me to do because God's word said it. At the same time, remembering his timetable is not ours, sometimes his will for a situation might not be our will for that situation. And so I can do what's right, but it doesn't mean that it's his will to call someone around me to repentance or change that situation. Again, all I can do is obey. Speaking of that, point number two, obeying God is the end of the issue. We don't obey in order to get X, Y, Z, even though many times we have blessings and obedience. We obey because it's right, even if it isn't as pleasant. We simply obey because obeying is right. It is right to obey. To obey is better than a sacrifice, as Samuel told King Saul. We simply want to obey. That's what we're called to do. We're called to obey. That is the end of the matter. It's not obey so things get better. Obey so I get this out of it. No, it is obey, and we obey. Number three, wicked people are always going to be wicked people. Moses' obedience did not mean Pharaoh was going to obey. We need to understand that. The wicked of this world, our obedience to God is not going to suddenly cause them to obey as well. Moses did what was right. Pharaoh resisted it because Pharaoh was a wicked man. Number four, people will misunderstand you. Children of Israel misunderstood Moses They might even slander you as they slandered Moses. They murmured against him. But is our aim to impress other people? No, we aim to please God. God is what matters. In a situation like this with Moses, if God was pleased with what Moses did, that's all that really ultimately matters. Even if the situation didn't magically become better because he just obeyed and now life is roses. No, again, That many times isn't the case. But if we obeyed God, regardless of if people misunderstand us, if God is pleased, that's really ultimately all that matters. Now, along those lines, point number five, and I said these are short points, we can only govern our own behavior. I cannot control Pharaoh. I cannot control what the children of Israel say about me, but I can govern my own behavior. I need to remember that as well. Number six, this sort of thing. This reality that we all experience where we do what's right and it blows up in our face, it requires us to walk by faith and not by sight. We don't always understand it. We don't always have to understand it. Trusting God is crucial here. We cannot lean unto our own understanding, but in all our ways we acknowledge Him and He makes our path straight. We walk by faith, not by sight. We trust God, we obey Him, and we rely on Him. Number seven, and our final point for today, this makes it all the more important for you and for me to be prayerful and studious. If I am praying to God and in good connection with Him through the Holy Spirit, 
and I am standing on God's Word. I'm equipped by it. I know it. I'm thoroughly furnished by it, and it's profitable to me. Regardless of the consequences, I can be sure when I'm obeying His Word that I have studied and that I know that I've done the right thing, and regardless of the consequences, I have a clean conscience towards God. And I would just say regarding that, it is always right to do right. It is always right to do right, even if the situation doesn't get better because of it. I hope these thoughts have been edifying to you today. May we always seek to obey God, regardless of the consequences. Again, I've been Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at MarchToZion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to... Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.